Anyway, all that to say, fear, fear is something we've done a poor job of talking about as the church. And so I feel a bit of weightiness as I preach about moving from fear to compassion this morning, because I don't want to add another sermon that uh, is either unhelpful or does damage to people. Um, I might even have a fear of preaching about fear, per se. But I also recognize that as we look at the world around us, fear is so pervasive and fear is a part of our lives every day. And so we have to talk about fear and we have to at least try to do a good job of it because it's a part of our lives. In the year 1597, there was an Englishman named Sir Francis Bacon and he penned a quote that many of us are probably familiar with. He said, knowledge itself is power. Knowledge is power. If Sir Francis Bacon is correct, that knowledge is power, then today we should be some of the most powerful people that the world has ever seen. We have knowledge at our fingertips with our smartphones. With the vastness and uh, the wealth of information we have on the internet, we can know the answer to a question within seconds of wondering it in our heads. In fact, with my, the family I married into, I'm infamous for being the person who pulls out my phone and researches an answer as soon as we're talking about something as a family. But we see this play out in our lives on a, a simple way. If I'm watching a Jets game, I might say, wow, Mark Scheifele's having a good game. How many points does he have this year? And I can whip up my phone, 49 points, as of Thursday when I was preparing this sermon. Or maybe we're walking down the sidewalk and there's these piles of snow way up to here and it feels like we're walking through a tunnel. And we say, it's been really snowy this winter. How much snow does Winnipeg normally get? And we can Google it and it says 127 centimeters and we're way past that this year. We can know literally anything, but knowledge doesn't necessarily make us more powerful. Today we know more about how the world works than we've ever known before, and oftentimes that makes us feel rather fearful. We realize that life as we know it is far more delicate than we've ever imagined. Today we know far more about the environment and what can possibly go wrong with climate change than our parents did 20 years ago. As we've dealt with this global pandemic over the past two years and we've learned all sorts of things about respiratory disease, we know way more than our great-grandparents did 100 years ago during the Spanish flu pandemic. And of course, as we, uh, as we witness global events, like Andre just witnessed too, of, of what's happening in the Ukraine, we can get updates almost every second about what's happening halfway around the world, and we can find commentary on what that means for our lives here in Canada. We know much, but it often feels like we fear much as well. Fear goes beyond the big events in our world as well. In the past week or two, as I was preparing for this sermon, I asked a number of people a simple question. What are you afraid of? And those who were, were gracious and responded to me shared a number of things they're afraid of, and there's a number of tendencies of things that we fear. A number of people that I talked to said that they're afraid of failure. They're afraid that they're going to try something new and it's not going to go well and they'll have to deal with their failure. Other people said they're afraid of regret. Perhaps we're afraid that we're going to make the wrong choice when we pick a school that we go to or we pick a career to go into 
And 15 or 20 years down the road, we'll wish we made a different choice. Others of us are afraid of how people see us. We're afraid that if others see who we really are, that we'll be rejected and we won't be accepted for who we are. There's those of us who fear harm coming to those that we love. We're afraid that our children will be in an accident and there's nothing we'll be able to do, or we're afraid that a loved one will get a terminal diagnosis and there's nothing we'll be able to do to help them or to alleviate their suffering. And others of us, too, are afraid of the unknown. We're afraid of what comes next. Will the next thing in our lives that we don't know about, will it be good? Will it be bad? Will it be devastating? As we talk about fear this morning, I want to reiterate that fear is a normal human emotion. Fear is a natural response to threats, and so there's nothing wrong with us if we feel afraid. But I also think that Jesus has words for us about fear. And this Lent season, as we seek to learn to follow God's ways, Jesus has something to say about how we approach fear differently than the world approaches fear. Jesus wants to shift our response to fear. And so this morning, as we look at this short passage from Luke, Luke 13, 31 to 35, I want to highlight the fact that Jesus is in a situation where he is faced with fear and where he is being threatened. I'm a big uh, fan of context because I think that understanding the bigger context helps us understand what's going on in a particular story. And so for context, in the verses leading up to Luke 13, 31, Jesus is busy doing ministry things. There's two main things that Jesus is doing. The first thing we see Jesus doing is that he's healing people. A previous story tells us that he meets a woman who has been crippled for 18 years by an evil spirit that is tormenting her. And Jesus heals her by driving out the spirit and pronouncing her healed. This is a good deed, but it irritates the religious leaders because Jesus healed a woman on the Sabbath. And on the Sabbath, according to Jewish law, you're not supposed to do anything. You're supposed to rest. And even though he did a good deed of healing, it violated the rule to not work. The second thing that Jesus is doing is Jesus is teaching people about what the kingdom of God looks like. I want to be careful that I'm not using insider language in a church where I I say phrases or use Christianese that we perhaps don't understand. So the kingdom of God is an important phrase in Christianity. A kingdom is like a country. In Bible times, it would have been a specific area where everyone spoke the same language and where everyone was ruled by the same king or the same queen. So when Jesus talks about the kingdom of God here in Luke, he's referring to everything that is in God's control and everything and everyone who has chosen to live under God's authority. And so as Jesus teaches about the kingdom of God, he talks about a couple of parables that are perhaps familiar to those of us who grew up in the church. He says that the kingdom of God is like a mustard seed, a little tiny seed that's planted in the ground and it's watered, and over time it becomes like a tree or a bush, and it becomes a place where birds and creatures are able to hide and find shelter and find peace. Jesus tells us that the kingdom of God is like a little bit of yeast that slowly makes its way through a batch of dough. And over time, as it gets the whole way through, it causes the bread to be leavened and it rises when it bakes. And Jesus also tells us that the way to the kingdom of God is narrow. And that in the kingdom of God, the people who want to be first will actually be last. 
and the people who are last will actually be first. The product of Jesus healing and teaching people is that he draws a large crowd around him. People like what he's doing, people like what he's saying, and they're eating up what he has to say. He's gaining momentum. And then the Pharisees show up in Luke 13, 31. The Pharisees were the religious leaders of Jesus' time, and they arrive on the scene and they tell Jesus that he needs to leave ASAP because Herod, who was the political ruler in Galilee where all this is happening, wants to kill Jesus. On a surface level, we might read this and say, oh, such kind Pharisees, they're warning Jesus that his life is in danger. They're trying to help him. They're trying to keep him safe. But I think if we read into this enough, we see that the Pharisees are really just trying to get rid of Jesus. They don't really care if Jesus lives or dies. In fact, they might actually want him dead. But their agenda is simply that they want Jesus to get away. They're afraid of Jesus. And so a good way that we get people away is we tell them that their life is in danger. We have a natural human response to preserve our lives, and so we flee. But Jesus tells the Pharisees that he will not leave because he has work left to do, and that Jesus can't go until he finishes that work. He says, I'm casting out demons today and tomorrow, and then on the third day, I will finish my work. Jesus' words become more puzzling then as he reflects on his life and his mission. Jesus tells the Pharisees that when he finishes his work, he has to go to Jerusalem because it's impossible for a prophet to be killed outside of Jerusalem. Scholars think that when Jesus says this, he was doing some foreshadowing, that he was telling his audience that he must die to finish his work on earth. He has to go to Jerusalem and he has to die there because that's what happens to the prophets and that's what has to happen to the Son of God. There's also some interesting symbolism we could dive into here if we wanted to, where Jesus says his work will be done on the third day, which could be an obvious reference to the resurrection. But what's important for us today is that Jesus, for Jesus, his death was a part of his mission. Jesus' death wasn't going to happen just as a byproduct of his actions or as a knee-jerk response by the political authorities of his day. When Jesus talks about death, it seems as if Jesus' death is going to be a part of his mission. Jesus also remarks that even though Jerusalem is a place that he will go to die, and that Jerusalem is where the people who will kill him are, his ministry is still driven by compassion. Jesus says he wants to shelter the people of Jerusalem. He wants to shelter those who will eventually kill him. He wants to hide them under his wings like a mother hen. And finally, he concludes the passage by foretelling his arrival in Jerusalem. He says that Jerusalem will not see him until the day when they say, Blessed is the one who comes in the name of the Lord. This passage is short. This passage is perplexing. When I first saw it, I said, how am I going to ever preach on this? But as I read over Luke 13 time and time again, I found several things that are key for us to know as we seek as a people to move from fear to compassion. The first thing that Jesus reveals in Luke 13 is that his ministry is to be a ministry centered around compassion. What is compassion? That word's in the title of the sermon, and when I say compassion, we might get an image of our mind, in our minds of what compassion looks like. But what is compassion? 
according to the dictionary, compassion is sympathetic pity and concern for the sufferings or misfortunes of others. In more basic English, um, compassion means to suffer with or to suffer alongside of someone. Compassion looks like Mother Teresa choosing to live with poor lepers in India and to care for their needs. Compassion looks like us taking the time to talk with our annoying coworker and listen to them talk about their day, even if it's the last thing that we want to do. Compassion is giving of ourselves, even when we might suffer. Over the past couple months, my life group here at Fort Gary has been reading a book called Jesus Through Middle Eastern Eyes. And no pun intended, but it has been an eye-opening experience for our group. In the book, the author, who spent many years living in the Middle East, looks at the Gospels and looks at Jesus' life as people who live in the Middle East today would see it. And so as he looks at different Gospel stories, he talks about the experiences of people living in Israel or Jordan or Egypt. And it's really been eye-opening for us. But the one chapter in the book that we looked at as a group that was really meaningful for me was when he looks at Luke chapter 4. And in Luke chapter 4, Jesus is about ready to start his ministry. Jesus returns to Nazareth, which is his hometown. And on the Sabbath, he goes into the synagogue, goes up front, grabs the scroll, and announces what his ministry and his life is going to be about. Jesus says that the Spirit of the Sovereign Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim release to the captives and recovery of sight to the blind, to let the oppressed go free, and to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And what the author of the book notes is that Jesus says there's five things that he's going to do. But the central things are acts of compassion. To proclaim release to the captives and recovery of sight to the blind and to let the oppressed go free. And even though Jesus is rejected by his hometown for saying this is what he's going to do, that's what Jesus' ministry is supposed to be about. And so in Luke 13, as Jesus talks and acts, we see a demonstration of the ministry of compassion. By healing a woman who's suffering on the Sabbath, even though he will receive criticism and maybe even be threatened uh, to die, this is an act of compassion because he's suffering with others. By choosing to continue to cast out demons and to heal people even when faced with the threat of death, that's an act of compassion. Willingly choosing to offer himself up to die in Jerusalem while still wishing to love those around him who will kill him, is an act of compassion. Jesus' ministry is centered around compassion. The second thing that Jesus reveals in Luke 13 is that as humans, fear causes us to turn inwards. And that's the opposite of compassion. Fear comes typically when we feel a threat to ourselves, and our natural response to fear is to turn inwards and put up walls, like with these bricks, so that we don't get hurt. When I was uh, out of college, I uh, just finished my undergrad degree, and I was living in the States, I worked for a construction company for a couple of years. And our work was, was fairly seasonal, where we worked really hard and put in long hours in the spring, summer, and fall. And then the winter was a time when we could relax, we could rest, and we could fix the things that we broke during the year. And so one winter, my boss decided to rent a building that me and my coworkers could use to fix everything that we broke. 
And this was a building that had been foreclosed upon. The government was looking to sell it, but he was able to make a deal where we could rent this building for a couple months while we fixed things up. And so the first day that me and my coworkers showed up at this building in January, we saw a sign outside of the property, and the sign informed us that when the building had been foreclosed on, the FBI had searched the premises, and they had removed a number of guns and explosives. Now, we should be aware because there might be more guns and explosives on the property. We entered the building, and we found a number of trapdoors and secret compartments, and what we discovered was the man who had lived there was a conspiracy theorist. He believed that the government was out to get him. He believed that the government wanted his money, and so he set up this property where he could defend himself and protect himself. Fear caused him to put up walls, literally, and also to put up guns and explosives. And we hear stories like that, and maybe we, we laugh because that's absurd, or we're horrified. Um, I will say American gun laws are a little different than Canadian gun laws. But the reality is, how many of us in March of 2020 went out to grocery stores and bought a whole bunch of toilet paper because we were uncertain of what COVID was going to be like and we wanted to look out for ourselves and so we put up walls of toilet paper to defend ourselves. Fear causes us to turn inwards, but compassion calls us to turn away from ourselves and focus on other people. What I find really interesting here in Luke 13, and one thing that I mold over and over and over, is how the people of Jerusalem are portrayed. Jesus tells us that Jerusalem is a place where prophets go to die, and that the people who are sent to Jerusalem are stoned to death. I thought this was odd. This stuck out to me. And so I investigated to see maybe Jesus is referring to a particular historical event. But as far as I can tell, the fact that Jerusalem kills the prophets is simply a reference to the fact that in the Old Testament, a number of prophets were put to death because their, their words and their opinions were not popular. And I started to ask myself, why then did Jerusalem kill all the prophets? And the answer that I settled on is that oftentimes as people, we're afraid of the things that we don't understand. Jerusalem was probably afraid of the prophets that were sent to it because prophets speak cryptically. Oftentimes, their messages challenge the way that we live. And so instead of considering the message of the prophets and saying, maybe we should change, the people of Jerusalem turned inward and killed the prophets because they were afraid of them. Now, I'm certain that no one here has ever killed a prophet physically, but I wonder how many times we too turn inwards, where there's certain people or certain places that we avoid because we don't understand them or because we're afraid. Fear makes us turn inward. Jesus calls us to turn outward in compassion. But the big question for us this morning is how do we actually do that? How do we make this giant step from our natural response of fear to what Jesus calls us to of compassion, which almost seems like a supernatural leap we have to make? How do we do that? I don't think that there's a one-size-fits-all answer for how we choose to be people of compassion, even when we're faced with fear. But I do know that if we're going to take Jesus seriously and follow him, we need to live compassionately, like Jesus did. And we need to take seriously the reality that sometimes the way of Jesus, the way of the cross, will include suffering. And so if we're willing to embrace that possibility 
and live in compassion regardless of the consequences, then we need to turn to Jesus because Jesus gives us the strength to live with compassion even when we feel threatened or we're faced with suffering. There's a story uh, that's often told in many variations about a large forest fire that burned down acre upon acre of forest and grassland. And when the fire had stopped burning, there were a number of firefighters who were surveying the damage and checking out what had been lost. And as they walked along what had once been a path, they found a large, unusual-looking clump that was burned to a crisp and laying among the ashes. So one of the firefighters approached the clump and, after kicking it, realized that the clump was the corpse of a dead, burnt mother hen. This puzzled the firefighters because if any creature would be able to escape a forest fire, it should be a bird, right? Birds can fly and so they can get away quicker. But when they kicked the carcass of the mother hen, four little chicks came out from underneath. The hen stayed and gave her life and died a painful death in order to shelter and protect her chicks from the fire. As we seek to move from fear to compassion, Jesus offers us a safe place, like the mother hen. If we feel overcome by fear as we try to move to compassion, Jesus is calling us and he says, Come to me. I will give you rest. I will protect you. If we fear failure, Jesus tells us that we can't disappoint him. If we fear regret, Jesus tells us that forgiveness is always available. If we fear what others think of us, Jesus tells us that we are loved. If we fear the unknown, Jesus tells us that there is nothing that is a surprise to God. In Jesus, we find the strength and the encouragement and the healing to be people who can live with compassion even when we are threatened and unsure. Jesus shelters us in our uncertainty so that we have the capacity to show compassion to other people who are facing uncertainty. If I'm being honest, I don't know what tomorrow holds, and I don't know that too many of us know what tomorrow holds. There are mornings when I wake up and I despair for the future. As I'm looking at the news while I'm drinking my coffee, I read about what's happening in the Ukraine, and sometimes I don't know if this can end well. In the last week or two, there have been days that I take my car to the gas station to to fill up, and I wonder if this economy is sustainable. I go online and I see the, the hateful political rhetoric that people on the political left and the political right hurl back and forth at each other so willingly, and I wonder if civility, much less unity, is even possible. But I also know that when it seems like evil will prevail, and it seems like darkness is impossible to overcome, and suffering feels inevitable for us, I know that the kingdom of God is still growing like that mustard seed, And the kingdom of God is a place where people can come and find shelter from the uncertainty in our world. And I know that the kingdom of God continues to work its way through the world like yeast, that even as bombs fall in the Ukraine, that the church is there giving of itself, even in the face of danger. And I know that even when it seems like powerful, evil people dictate the world and our intent on asserting themselves over others, I know that the kingdom of God doesn't care about what people say is powerful. 
But instead, the kingdom of God celebrates the people who are important. And I want to be a part of that. And as the kingdom of God slowly takes over the world like a wave, and there's much that we can be afraid of, the kingdom of God is much more. And as the world is impacted by war and economic uncertainty and division, the only hope that we have is in Jesus And the only way that we participate in that is by being people of compassion. And I want to be a part of that. May we as a church want to be a part of that. Let's pray. Lord, make us instruments of your peace. Where there is hatred, let us sow love. Where there is injury, let us sow pardon. Where there is doubt, let us sow faith. Where there is despair, let us sow hope. Where there is darkness, let us sow light. Where there is sadness, let us sow joy. O divine Master, grant that we may not so much seek to be consoled as to console, to be understood as to understand, to be loved as to love. For it is in giving that we receive, it is in pardoning that we are pardoned, and it is in dying that we are born to eternal life. Amen. Thank you for listening to this message from Fort Gary MB Church. We hope that what you heard challenged you to think in new ways about Jesus Christ and the life that we are called to through his death and resurrection. If you have any questions about who we are as a church, our mission, or have any other questions in general, please do not hesitate to contact our office email at info at fgmb.ca. Be blessed.